Welcome to Bedtime Stories for the End of the World, a podcast where we've travelled back from the underworld through endless fields of black wheat and we're feeling refreshed, moisturised, focused and ready to take on the day. We've assembled some of the finest poets the UK has to offer and asked them to rewrite the myths, legends and fairy stories they want to pass down the generations. Stories they want to preserve for whatever future comes next. I'm your host, Eleanor Penny, and I am thrilled to introduce our guests this week, Antosh Wojcik and Alice Frecknell. Hello. Hi. Hello. Alice Frecknell is a poet, short fiction writer and fine artist. Her debut poetry collection is forthcoming from Outspoken Press this year and is supported by Arts Council England. Her writing is published in a number of anthologies, including Butcher's Dog, The Stinging Fly and Lightship Anthology, and she was shortlisted for the Outspoken Prize for Poetry 2019. Alice has an MA in Creative Writing and is a Roundhouse Poetry Collective alumna and a member of the Unislam Post-Emerging Cohort. Antosh Wojcik is a poet, sound artist and drummer. His cross-disciplinary performance piece, How to Keep Time, a drum solo for dementia, was commissioned by Penned in the Margins and toured the UK and internationally in 2019. He led the poetry and sound course Sound Text for the Poetry School in 2020, which prompted writers to fuse text and sound-making principles in their work. His writing has appeared in anthologies published by Bad Betty Press and Nine Arches Press, and he is first into the starting blocks today. Antosh, what myth have you chosen to rewrite for us? I uh, I picked The Spirit of a Buried Man by A.H. Ratislav. It's a Polish telling of a Grateful Dead myth in which a man finds an unburied person, buries them, uh, the spirit comes back to them and offers rewards for this gesture. And it's sort of about the various ways in which the spirit sort of remains with the man. Wonderful. I'd love to hear it. The Department of Spiritual Deportation. Suspended in the grey matter of the home office, between the corridors and agent offices, filing systems for molecules and executive orders on national identity, lies the Department of Spiritual Deportation. A place of betweenness, itself a limbo. One can't remember arriving or leaving its interrogation chambers. Its description is embargoed, and few can find the secretary that keeps its correspondence. Piotr has found himself under the time-slowing lights of an interview room, an agent sat opposite him with an urn of ash, sweat in his palms. Where there was once quiet in his gut, there is now the rush of noise, his memory gone to soup, boiled by the spotlight. The agent rifles through a file. An angled man, one of both too much face and none, a holographic suit that shifts focus in the light. He'd be hard to recall, the same way neighbours are, present but scattered in actual presence. Piotr might as well be interviewed by a mirage. Behind one-way glass stands the spirit of an unburied man, wearing a parachute and a trooper's uniform. A humble soul looking into his own hands as if they were enthusiast magazines. Polish, asks the agent, a routine voice that paper cuts to the bone. Yes, uh, dad sighed, mum's English. Been to Poland much? Couple times, 
good fish there. Puddles in his palms. He presses them into his knees. He can hear leaking sounds in his ears. This is already an arduous process, but you've complicated it further by carrying out this cremation. I didn't really know what to do. The agent raises his hand. An unorthodox method of laying an unburied man to rest, I'll say that. He flicks the urn. It rings like a dinner bell. In some ways, you did us a favour. We don't want a spirit dwelling who's not supposed to be here. If he was a Brit, it'd be different, but he's not and you're not, so this is complicated. Something like the stone of a fruit landing in the lake of the gut. Something unswallowable. A small, weighted drop of the infinite. He landed in your cherry tree, the agent asks. The cherry tree. His route to this place and his home before. Tend to something that bears fruit and maintains sanctuary. His chaddock grew gooseberries. His papa, strawberries. It had taken him a while to find a place for the garden that had the right soil. But eventually he could grow the cherry tree. It was the quietest thing he knew. Piotr looked to the spirit behind the glass. He's inspecting the parachute. The glowing sheen of its silk. Is he stuck with the parachute? Unfortunately. You should have taken it off before you burned him with your tree. It's hard in the moment to think clearly, after losing a large part of yourself. The thing that maintains the everyday. The tree's your parachute, I get it. Think of this as you winging the spirit. Of course, it's the smoke of the cremation that drew us to you. Smoke. A church bell ringing in the wind as the last standing church rests in the smoke of powdered Warsaw. That's where Stashik was dropped, right? Paratroopers dropped in the smoke of Warsaw. As it was shelled, like they were designing a new desert. And you have a history of pyromania? Piotr did burn things. On weekends. The papers. Wood left over from old furniture. Burnt things no longer useful. Not bodies. You're supposed to wait and see if the spirit shows up, is all. That's why his memory is gone. He doesn't even know he's supposed to give you blessings. Too many stones falling into his gut. He's sinking. Piotr tries to recall photos of Stashek from his Baptist albums, but it's all ash and smudge in his head. The agent continues. The spirit is an ex-paratrooper, presumed to be from a Polish independent parachute brigade. That's hard to be certain. The uniform doesn't really translate well into the spirit plane, if their memory's not so intact. Uh, we're running on the basis his body had been adrift since the war, was probably lost or shot down, and he'd been seeking our ancestors. My Baptist brother, Stashek. It never came back from a drop in the wall. Uh, it could be him, but I wouldn't dwell on it. Keeps this process cleaner if you just think of him as some lost spirit of a Polish guy you put to rest. Family's messy when it comes to the dead. 
the stones are taking root. Underwater trees beginning to bloom. He's not supposed to be here, and you didn't wait, so you didn't talk with him. So we don't know what the burial rites were. The agent flicks the urn. It rings like a school bell. You didn't agree the terms of scattering the ash either. We don't know who's supposed to rest him, or where, or when he's supposed to rest. That puts us in a predicament. Can't you just send the ash to Poland? The agent suppresses a smile. We can hardly load an urn full of ash onto a plane. Too much paperwork. If it gets lost, we'll have an international situation on our hands, and that's best avoided these days. The urn isn't the problem. We need to arrange a deal regarding the blessing. A forest of trees in the gut. Breath short. Lights deepening the swallows. His hands shored into his jeans, trying to be still and quiet. Piotr looks to the spirit, the light of him greying into a wartime photograph. Your record shows you've had only one other spiritual incident. A choir took to singing Polish hymns in his garden every night after he moved in. The neighbours began to complain. They started to watch him leave for work in the morning. They no longer greeted him at church and checked in on him constantly. They installed CCTV cameras for their front lawns and driveways. They didn't tell him when bin day changed. I didn't want to disturb the neighbours. Honestly. I understand. I've got Celtic in me. That ancestral music showed up on my driveway for a whole week and drove me crazy. Tarmac's the best stuff for that. The trees bear fruit in the throat and the lungs, clinging to his swallows. The rush of inner forest music unbearable. He no longer feels he is contained in his body, the barrier between him and his spirit dissolved by the light. The deal I have to offer is... You take the urn, and we take the spirit. If you don't accept, we'll have to charge you with desecration of a corpse and uh, for paving the choir under your patio, which is a heap of violations, by the way. The agent's eyes flare like a feel-good laser. Piotr looks to the spirit of the unburied man. He is watching, though unseeing. The face both marked and markless as lost men often are. It must be good to know nothing that came before, Piotr thinks. To not have it eating at you. I want to know what the spirit's blessing would be. It varies, but they tend to offer the power of transformation. So you can be all sorts of animals. It isn't too useful in this day and age. You have more freedom than an urban fox, after all, the agent scoffs. I just want the quiet again. I don't want to disturb anyone. I don't want to be disturbed. We can arrange that. Believe me, this is your best option. The agent winks and offers a handshake. Think of the urn as a way of us returning Stashik's ashes to your family. Piotr looks to the spirit whose eyes are gleaming like small worlds. He takes the handshake. Something like lightning blitzes the branches concealed in his arms. 
petrifies the leaves and cherries. A burning smell in his nose. A falling into a skinless void. The lights go out. Piotr's cul-de-sac is quieter than it has ever been, as if something has settled. The neighbours seem more occupied, distant, unbothered. He wakes after a dream of a giant tree falling from the sky and crushing his house. In the bathroom, he drinks some water from the tap, but immediately coughs something up. A cherry stone hits the ceramic of the sink. He goes to the urn. It resides by the fireplace in the lounge. He opens the lid and looks on the ashes. He can make out a figment of the last standing church in powdered Warsaw. He closes the lid, then chokes out another cherry stone. It strikes the urn. A church bell rings. Piotr's garden has died day by day. His nights are the loudest they have ever been. He becomes sleepless, the ring of the bell still in decay. He takes the urn to the garden, empties the ash where the cherry tree stood. He plants the stones from his gut into the soil. A voidal ringing in his ears. He prays for the noise to let him rest. A haunting reading, quite literally, you know. I'm so curious as to what drew you to this story of the Grateful Dead or these stories of the Grateful Dead? So in particular with The Spirit of the Buried Man, the version that this is kind of a response to, or maybe a disruption of, I was really taken by how essentially the scholar in the story decides to instantly do the right thing and bury the body uh, and is rewarded for that. And I think it's something that I really love about fairy tales is they're sometimes like altruistic and everything is kind of done with good intent initially from the start and I kind of wanted to play with the idea disrupt the idea and see like what happens if for instance this unburied body and its spirit finds someone who is unwilling to help it and actually wants to kind of self-preserve as opposed to sort of resting the spirit which sort of then invokes this whole story that sort of happens with for Piotr basically to trade the spirit of the unburied man and effectively I guess like assimilate or have a quiet life again <laughs> you know um there's something so sort of irreverent and at the same time sinister in this department of spiritual deportation <laughs> can you tell me a bit more about that yeah well I've been profoundly disturbed by how our own home office has been operating over the last forever in effect, the kind of disregarding of human rights, effectively. Um, and I think I kind of got a bit worried about the fact that, in some sense, I feel if we're able to treat people like that when we're here on, on Earth and we're in the sort of the everyday existence and humanity is kind of up for question, I, I think there's a bit of a spiritual cost that comes with that. Mm. And I kind of, I've just sort of, wanted to take it to a kind of logical conclusion like would the home office actually even try to bureaucratize basically spiritual immigration as well <laughs> like 
if they if they could extract energy from it or like a resource from it would they would they do it and i think they would <laughs> so it's it's, it's <laughs> it sounds of... like a safe bet doesn't it <laughs> <laughs> i realize i'm i'm making my political stance very clear here um but like i think about my kind of assimilated polishness and that i'm i'm safe in in a certain regard and i kind of wanted to see what would happen if i basically like disturbed someone who had to try to assimilate themselves but was never going to be seen as british what like what whatever um and that the home office could in effect offer him britishness if he trades in this you know this spirit and i it feels like it would be something that they would do (laughs) yeah and and being haunted does crop up time and time again as a metaphor for how the ways in which history lingers with us and that's why i find it so interesting Mm. that this spirit you chose is a soldier he's a ghost of of like past violence yeah i i kind of wanted to choose someone who'd effectively been kind of adrift in my head he's sort of been unstuck from time as well so he sort of has been an adrift body temporally (laughs) (laughs) and somehow ended up in Piotr's reality yeah i just I think I wanted it to kind of strike at the core of basically what Piotr was sort of ignoring about his own family, I guess. Um, it's kind of loosely based on like a, my biography. Like I had people in my, my family line who served in the paratrooper unit and didn't come back from their runs, you know, but I don't really know about it because it's not talked about. So I kind of wanted to instill it here and like why it might be a case for sort of complacency and just not really actually thinking like do i try and save the spirit or do i just try and have my quiet life yeah there there is a lot in there about the uncertainty of memory and historical fact when it's preserved within those family units where like so many other things are at stake alice what do you Hmm. make of this sort of semi-haunting i think it's fascinating i think the way antosh handles it in the piece is really interesting and this sort of sense of unrest at a moment that we think of as as rest you know death is such a complex thing and and what goes with someone in that moment I think is something that's really complicated and what stays with us is something that's really complicated yeah I really love the way Antosh has handled that in the piece And that, I think, is a lovely moment to think about what story you've chosen for us, Alice. I've chosen Peter Pan by J.M. Barry, the the boy who goes to Neverland and (laughs) refuses to to grow up. I'm sure our listeners will have been sort of culturally inundated via Disney and the J.M. Barry book and play, I mean, and all that kind of thing. Uh, But for those who might have missed out can you give us a few match highlights of what peter pan is about i mean if you take it right back to the the original text there's two stories there's peter in kensington gardens and there's peter and wendy and peter is this boy who supposedly ran away when he was two weeks old and ended up in neverland which is this sort of limbo i guess similarly to in Antosh's place sort of ends up in this kind of limbo between the world we know and this sort of fairy tale existence where 
time doesn't really exist in the same way and he remains a boy forever um and he doesn't want to grow up and he encounters kind of lots of perilous situations there are pirates and captain hook who is sort of his nemesis and i guess within the story hook sort of represents adulthood and growing up and everything that peter thinks that means and that sort of hostile existence and he goes to neverland he t- he takes wendy and and her brothers to neverland um on a sort of adventure trip but he's essentially trying to sort of kidnap her into becoming his mother figure and there are various other boys on the island called the lost boys and he sort of brings wendy and sort of like i've got this mother for you yeah it's it's a really complicated fun but but also quite sinister story i think (laughs) (laughs) yeah the more you think about it the more you're like hang on a second yeah (laughs) i cannot wait to hear your version please take it away uh, in your own time thanks straight on till morning peter plays a guessing game as he waits person in blue holding a clipboard nurse woman leading a child by the hand mother an island of lino, perimeter of wipe-friendly faux-leather blue-green, turquoise lagoon. The receptionist is a drowning mirage behind a water tank, a pick-and-mix of tropical fish with a job to do. Be calming. A boy with a sword, waistcoat, striped t-shirt and a patch over his left eye. Ahoy there! Pirates! Their catch, a young girl, ankles rope burnt, screams gagged. A bit of trickery, Peter spits the voice of their captain into a dirty palm and throws it into the proud chest of the ship's sail, which stands ready to hurl it back. Release her! Shh! Peter! An elbow to the ribs. Beside him, hair year-swept to white. For a second, she is just an old lady, and he feels like a boy, scolded. But that mouth, a stretched wing, the firm squeeze of her hand, pillowy veins and a tally of their marriage, 60 years, marked out in liver spots. Wendy. Hello, hello, how are you? Come in, yes, have a seat, and you are excellent, very good. Some questions then. How would you describe your mood? You're forgetful, confused, all the time, some of the time? I'm going to say three words, and I want you to repeat back after the last one. You understand? Bulldog, marrow, truck, you understand? Clay, cat, cacophony, bit trickier there. If I hold up these cards, can you tell me what the picture is, what the image is? Three. The captive jumps overboard, hitches a ride on a mermaid's fin heading straight to shore. The captain finds her gone, the sky bleeding red. A packet of pills and a tired mind backed against a wall. Doctors with pencil markers at the ready to measure the rate at which he's growing downwards into childhood, into a kind of never place. Resistance of bone, blade slicing clean through thud of a hand landing twitch of a tiny finger the crocodiles fed peter raises his knife crows his victory over the captain 
second drawer down in the dresser. Child's laughter and a shadow. Peter opens it a crack and gone. Just like that. Missing. Six foot shadow of a man. Last seen at sunrise making its way east across the carpet, proud shoulders. If found, please call the below number with a clear description. No time wasters. Note. Flighty. Approach with caution. Nothing but wool blend shades of green, in neat layers of three. The colour brings out his eyes. He lifts a jumper, gentle to keep the breath in it. Dresses at the window, a soft scratch against thinning skin. Something muddy, crusted to the collar. Outside, a dog walks a pram. Peter tries the lock. Fingertips unfeeling, knuckles bulbous. He moves like a puppet of his late father. The captain lives then. Show yourself. From the cuff of a sleeve, a silver glint. In place of his severed fist, fused metal, a single sharpened hook, forever summoning. On good days, Wendy's voice breaks through. A quiet note calling him home. And Peter finds himself an old man. Though giddy as a boy and a little bruised from the journey, her expression a knot. Time, no longer a lashing eel in a neck brace, but the steady swell of an orchid bud, an expanding lung. She empties his pockets each night before bed, like he's a child, she his mother. Frayed inch of string, a chess piece, marble, Chipped, chewed-off edge of a fingernail, a sycamore seed. Peter takes it from her, lets it fall, spiralling into flight. A dove's chest lifts in him, and he is racing an arrowhead of geese through the air. Plucks a crust of bread straight from a beak. The ground an endless sea, wisps of waves, thumbprint of a boat. Comes into land, riding the back of a thankful crocodile like a surfboard. A ticking clock in its stomach announces him. The wind calls his name across the whole of Neverland. On the sill is a wooden box. Inside, a collection of his children's baby teeth, a curl and a thimble. A hat on his index. Peter brings the cool metal to his lips. Wendy watching from the doorway. Don't you have a kiss for me? Her great habit of appearing quietly moving from one space to the next. Well? Between them, he offers an open palm. The bit of silver catches the light, and he chases a fairy, flittering across the ceiling, then nothing. Come out, come out, Tink. I see you, ready or not. Wendy's started waking in the early hours, to find him wandering the house, looking for something in the old nursery, calling out for their boys, thinking them lost. They're grown, my love, she tells him. Remember, flown, of course. They wait out the days, organising his things. The home is nice enough, and he seems quite taken with the view. Safety catches on the windows, but Wendy lets in the birdsong to prove they open, and he seems satisfied with that. She promises to make over the bed each time she visits, re his books. 
he searches for the brightest star. Its light is youth and joy in the darkness, and the very sight, a happy thought, lifts him. Absolutely beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. You were talking just now about how in the the original story there's something sinister or melancholy to be mined there that we don't often pay attention to. Can you talk me through a little bit of your thinking around that in this poem? Yeah, so my version, I guess, um, however you want to kind of refer to it, sort of looks at ageing and dementia um two things that like so often go go together and neverland as a sort of place of escapism i guess that the mind goes to but i think something that i was quite interested in when approaching this and approaching that sort of sinister aspect of the mind i guess is how much of it is sinister and how much of it can be seen as like a refuge i suppose and that there are little glimpses of joy in escaping to different places or in forgetting or, yeah, I think living with dementia or living with someone who has dementia, it's about those kind of fleeting moments of of happiness often and it sort of doesn't matter. So I think that was something I was really interested in, sort of exploring a bit this space between two things that at times feels sinister and at times feels uncertain but can also be a place of kind of fun and joy and exploration yes you flick very sort of quickly and naturally between the freedom and the carefree existence of childhood beginning of life and something that's also joyful but maybe tinged with a little more sadness at the end of life I guess why was Peter Pan a way for you of telling that story I first became really fascinated with the story of Peter Pan um when I was at university and I I studied the book as part of a children's literature module and there's a sort of reading of the book where Neverland is this island of dead children um which is an incredibly kind of dark (laughs) reading of the book but one that just really fitted for me and made a lot of sense in you know within the text um and even rereading it to sort of do my research for for writing this piece I'd forgotten just kind of how sinister it was and um but yeah so that idea of Peter Pan and and death has kind of always since then been quite interwoven for me and the idea that actually all the lost boys are are dead and then I was having a conversation about that with with my sister actually and and sort of talking about that concept and 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 dying and and going to Neverland and she sort of said well it, it feels also a bit like dementia and that that the the mind the adult body sort of remains here, but so, so gradually more and more of the mind goes somewhere else. Um, and often we see people who have dementia, it is those earlier 
longer term memories that they return to and it's the short-term memory that sort of gets obliterated really but those memories of childhood are often really vivid still so that for me really spoke to this story as well I've heard so many um interpretations or I guess readings of Peter Pan where it talks about Neverland as just like your childhood and of course that's great and fun uh but they come back to the real world for a reason and uh you know the real world is the thing that needs to assert itself eventually but on your interpretation it makes Neverland seem like I don't know such more of a place of refuge and uh like kindness and respite against the sort of cruel time-basedness of the adult reality. I wanted there to sort of be a gentleness, I think, in Neverland and moving there. And, you know, there there are kind of moments of, of violence and or, or moments of disturbing imagery, perhaps, you know, with there's, there's still this kind of captain figure and... But... Yeah, I think I think it is um, a gentler place, and you know, dementia is is not a kind of sudden thing. It's a very gradual thing, and it is a sort of gentle process. Although it can feel like a brutal process, it's a sort of slow, and for the most part, quite steady kind of decline or, or departure. So that was important for me that it in this piece that there was a sense of that gradual journey and that it wasn't just he went to Neverland and that's where he stayed you know there's this kind of gateway between the two places that you sort of glimpse. And Tosh I know that you've worked before on dementia and memory and age what do you make of this retelling? I think I was really struck by uh actually the the gentleness and the care that that is um and trying to preserve that because what i really love about your your telling of this um alice is effectively how much we see um the people around him (laughs) you know like kind of uh trying to get through and trying to um there's always that sense of you're trying to communicate with the reality that peter's like seeing right <laughs> uh that the, the person who has dementia is sort of seeing and, and trying to not like actually disrupt it but also maintain your narrative for them and i just i yeah i just love the moment basically towards the end when wendy's sort of saying they're grown my love remember flown and the happy thought that lifts him at the very end it's just so uh i guess when you are with people who are going through this i feel like you've really captured just that perseverance that the family have and like just hoping something gets through that can just like like ease you know uh and i just think you maintained and tapped into sort of the magic of the story that's so like essential and it connects us you know in so many ways to this narrative and i think to apply it in that sense of trying to like gently age you know it's just yeah it's just just super profound it it feels it feels extremely like resonant with what that experience must be i i certainly know from from my experience with working with people with dementia or actually even just living with my grandparents who have who have gone through it 
it just I felt it really captured those like moments that you try to hold on to where you kind of connect with the lift mm. lifting parts whilst it's all kind of yeah you know, really unstable and difficult it's beautiful I think I had um, a similar feeling uh, when I was reading Antosh's piece and listening to it again now with the the cherry stone <laughs> and the and and that ringing uh, towards the end and the way you sort of had this this image that could be both gentle and beautiful and also quite a violent disturbing thing mm-hmm. and from the from the first time I, I read that piece it was the, the cherry stone really kind of sung out to me in that way and sort of resonated I think you just used that word resonated and it was like yeah that it did it sort of had this kind of ripple effect mm-hmm. of feeling for me when I when I read that piece thank you and that I think is where we may have to leave it the gateway between this world and Neverland this world and the next world that's why I have to leave you my wonderful guests thank you so much for coming on and regaling us with your wonderful poems Antosh Wojcik and Alice Frecknell you have been listening to bedtime stories for the end of the world I've been your host Eleanor Penny And until next time, sweet dreams and thanks for listening. This project is funded by Arts Council England and supported by the good folks at Spread the Word. Our project producer is Tom McAndrew and our podcast producer is Maya Bosworth. We have a book out also entitled Bedtime Stories for the End of the World. It's illustrated by the artist Inquisitive and published by Studio Press. To get your copy, you can go to our website, endoftheworldpodcast.com. There you can also explore all our previous episodes and find out more about our writers and their stories. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Goodbye World Pod. <laughs>